Our text on this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is 1 Samuel chapter 12. We've been in 1 Samuel for a few weeks. Have your Bible open to this text because particularly for those who have not been with us in the last week or two, I'll do some looking back at the previous chapters in order to set the context well enough for us to move through chapter 12 together. It's my conviction that it is in verse 19 in 1 Samuel 12 when the moment finally comes. When the purpose of the gathering of the people at Gilgal is realized. When the moment had come for the kingdom to be renewed. Because it's in verse 19 of our text that it says, All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Last week we were in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, and specifically it was verse 14 of chapter 11 where we focused our time. Because do you remember what Samuel says in verse 14 of chapter 11? Come, Samuel the prophet says to the people, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. And it wasn't Saul's kingdom Samuel was interesting, interested in renewing, we argued. It was the Lord's. Because it was Yahweh, Saul had said in verse 13 of chapter 11, it was the Lord who had worked salvation in Israel. Not Saul. Not the one the people had recently acclaimed king. Well, Saul was involved, but Saul saw with perfect clarity the most important thing that the salvation Israel experienced that day in their deliverance from the Ammonites and their cruel king Nahash wasn't his doing. It was the Lord's doing. The Lord had saved his people, which was precisely the thing that the people themselves had rejected in asking for a king. Do you remember that? This has been the topic that's been front and center for us in 1 Samuel since chapter 8, where in verse 5 of chapter 8, if you want to look at it, says, When all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And in making that demand, it was not fundamentally that the people were rejecting Samuel, though the reasons they gave were rejecting Samuel. The Lord himself says in chapter 8, verse 4, that it went much further than that. They have not rejected you, Samuel, he says, but they have rejected me from being king over them. They have rejected me the Lord says. And so 
when a few weeks ago the time came as we were in chapter 10 that the people finally get what they asked for, when they finally get to see Saul in chapter 10, what does Samuel say? Chapter 10, verse 18, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hands of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Why did the people reject the Lord as their king? The answer had become clear. They did not think the Lord could save them. Not in the face of the new threat of the Ammonites who we meet in chapter 11. It's a king they want to fight their battles. It's a king they want to save them. Which is exactly why when their newly identified king's first act at the end of chapter 10 is one of obedience to Samuel. After Samuel had told them the rights and duties of the kingship and wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. After Samuel had sent all the people away, including Saul himself without any king-like activity taking place. In other words, when the people clearly saw that their new king was still to be subject to the Lord's prophet, well, then what do some of the people start to say? Chapter 10, verse 27, some worthless fellows begin to say, how can this man save us? How can this man save us? This isn't what they wanted after all. Ironically, as you know from last week, if you were here, the answer to that question is, he can't. This man can't save them. Not of his own abilities, or his own strength, or his own wisdom, which is what they were looking for. We saw how it was verse 6 in last week's chapter 11. It was verse 6 that stood at the center of the narrative of that chapter, how salvation came to the people that day, not because Saul had been the one to bring it about, but because the Lord had been. Chapter 11, verse 6, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, the words about the situation of the people facing the Ammonites. The Lord was the one who empowered Saul to save his people. And in fact, it was only because of the Lord that the people changed their tune about Saul at all. Verse 7 of last week's chapter, why is it that the people themselves have a change of heart to come out and follow Saul and Samuel? The text says, it was because the dread of the Lord fell upon them. In other words, it was all the Lord's work so that it was the words from the lips of Saul himself that perfectly summarized the point of last week's narrative. Today, Saul said in verse 13 of chapter 11, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Which means Samuel now knows that if ever the moment was going to be right, this was it. Come, he said, let us go to Gilgal. And there, renew the kingdom, not Saul's kingdom, 
the Lord's kingdom. The kingdom of the Lord, their God, who saves them, who had delivered them as their king across the Jordan in the days of Joshua when the people first came to Gilgal. The same king who had delivered them across the Red Sea and the exodus from Egypt, the Lord reigns forever and ever, Moses sang on the shores of the Red Sea. And so, last week as we left chapter 11, verse 15 of chapter 11 says, All the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. That was what Gilgal was about, we learned. And now in chapter 12, we come to what it was that Samuel said, and what it was the Lord did, and how it was the people responded at Gilgal. Chapter 12 is what it looked like when the kingdom was renewed at Gilgal. And brothers and sisters, what is it that's required to enter and to live in and to go on living in the kingdom of God? One thing, a right relationship with the king. a right relationship with the king, the Lord. And that's never changed, has it? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus would say, some thousand years after Samuel had lived. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 19 of 1 Samuel 12 is therefore when I think the moment finally comes. When all the people finally say to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Verse 19 it was the response of all the people to two things, to Samuel's speech and to the Lord's threat of judgment. And notice something there in verse 19. We'll come back and talk about what's led, led up to it. But notice in verse 19 how it is that the people recognize not only their sin, but its effect. Notice how they refer to the Lord as your God, Samuel. Don't they? Your God. Well, back in 1 Samuel 7, in verse 8, if you remember it, before they had asked for a king, the people had asked Samuel to cry out to the Lord, our God, for us. Now it's your God. Which means that the people finally understand. They see that they've sinned greatly against the king. 
And all they can do is turn to him. And as I read chapter 12, verse 19 then is the hinge point. Before verse 19, we get the speech of Samuel and the threat of judgment from the Lord, to which the people respond. And then after that response in verse 19 comes the gracious response of the Lord. And I think both the before and the after of verse 19 are full of insight for us, dear friends. So that in the time that remains this morning, we'll consider both the before and after asking ourselves, will we also come and renew the kingdom? Now before verse 19, as I've already said, I see two main components, Samuel's speech, and the Lord's threat of judgment. So let me look at each one briefly with you. The scene is set there at the start of Samuel's speech, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. You'll recall how the Lord had spoken to Samuel back in chapter 8 and said, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you. And Samuel did. I've made a king over you, he says to them. He'd privately anointed Saul in chapter 10, verse 1. He'd led Israel through the choosing of Saul by lot. He'd presented Saul to them as the one selected in chapter 10, verse 24. He'd written the terms of the kingdom in chapter 10, verse 25. And now behold, Samuel says in verse 2 of our text, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. Which matches exactly what the elders had said back in chapter 8, verse 5, when they first demanded the king, doesn't it? Behold, the elders had said in chapter 8, you are old, Samuel, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king. Samuel has. And his age and his sons, he does not hide. But what about his leadership? Was Samuel himself in some way responsible? Was Israel right to ask for a king because there was anything wrong with how Samuel had conducted himself as their leader? Is that what's been going on? I have walked before you, he says, from my youth until this day. In other words, I've lived and worked openly before you since the day I was given to the Lord's service as a boy. Here I am, Samuel says, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. The language he uses suggests a court setting. Samuel puts himself in the dock, so to speak, and invites the people to bring accusations against him before the Lord and before the new king, the Lord's anointed. Whose ox have I taken, Samuel begins, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. Does anyone have anything to say? Had Samuel's power been exercised in oppression? Had he abused his position? Had he taken from those he was supposed to be serving? 
You'll recall how Samuel had warned the people that that's precisely what they could expect from the kind of king they were asking for in chapter 8. But verse 4, the people then said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day, Saul, that you have not found anything in my hand. Samuel thus exposes the people. Their request for a king wasn't rooted in a failure of Samuel's own leadership, whatever their purported reasons were at the time. With that objection out of the way, Samuel then turns to be the prosecutor against Israel. Because not only has Samuel been faithful, but so has the Lord. The Lord who was witness to Samuel's innocence is now the one who had made leaders for Israel from the beginning. The Lord is witness, Samuel begins, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. At which point, Samuel then articulates a pattern that we find in Israel's own history. There would come a crisis, followed by a cry for help, followed by deliverance through leadership raised up by Yahweh. Remember, Samuel says, the bondage in Egypt? When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. It was the same throughout the period of the judges. Israel forgot the Lord their God. And so they would go into the hand of Sisera or the hand of the Philistines or the hand of the king of Moab. Verse 10, Samuel says, And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ostroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And so the Lord sent the Lord sent Jeroboam, another name for Gideon, we know from Judges 6. The Lord sent Barak and Jephthah and Samuel. And you lived in safety, Samuel summarizes in verse 11. Can't you see? Can't you see how utterly righteous the Lord has been in his dealings with you? But then in verse 12 came Nahash, king of the Ammonites. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, wasn't that obvious? Oh, but the most contemporary crisis is always seems to be the worst, doesn't it? And evidently, the aggression of Nahash that 
was first mentioned in our reading in just last week in chapter 11 in verse 1 had actually begun about the same time as the events of chapter 8, according to the way Samuel reports it here, when the people first asked for the king. Which means that as the story of chapters 9 and 10 was unfolding and the Lord was choosing Saul, the crisis of the Ammonites was developing. It was the Nahash threat that had motivated the demand for a king back in chapter 8, Samuel says. Only this time... There was no cry for help. This time they do not say we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. This time they said no. But a king shall reign over us. There was no seeking for deliverance from Yahweh. Instead, they specified the method in which their deliverance must come. There was no appeal to the true king. No trust in Yahweh to send adequate leadership as he had always done. They wanted a king. And now they had one. We've covered the ground of chapters 9 to 11 rather thoroughly. Verse 13 says, And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And here's the key point. Their king would do them no good. Their king, Samuel says, will do you no good unless both they and their king feared and served and obeyed the Lord. Because they and their king had another king. And it was time to renew that kingdom. The point of 1 Samuel 12 is that everything is still dependent on Israel's relationship with the Lord. The supreme obligation of the children of Israel had not changed with the establishment of the monarchy, whatever they'd hoped. Their duty, as it always had been, was to follow after the Lord, to worship Him with all their heart. The alternatives are clear. Verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. With Israel and Israel's king following the Lord once again, the kingdom would be renewed. The king would once again be properly recognized in Israel. The other option would be disaster. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Because the crucial test of truly having the Lord as your king is obedience to his commands. And so at Gilgal, the choice is before them. Samuel has spoken to them the word of the Lord. But in his mercy, the Lord will do more. 
The Lord will warn them that day in ways that go beyond just words. Verse 16. Now therefore, Samuel continues, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. It's hard for us to see this clearly. But the point here isn't just that this is some mere thunderstorm. This happens during wheat harvest. That means it's sometime in the months of May or June, the beginning of the dry season in Israel. Every Israelite knew rain was extremely rare at that time of year. And the point becomes even stronger than that. A severe rainstorm would jeopardize the crop would in fact threaten famine so that when the people request of Samuel in verse 19, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. Their request is not unfounded. The Lord was acting in judgment against them. The covenant curses weren't merely theoretical. They were the threats of a living God with the power to impose them at any time. This was the Lord's direct response to their desire for a king. It was the demonstration of the power of the Lord God as king of all creation. Which is when, at last, the point came home. Verse 19 is the turning point. The people turn. They acknowledge what Samuel has been saying to them from the start. We have added to all our sin this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Dear friends, I ask you, what do you want in your lives? What do we want in our lives, in this day, in this world, that would displace the Lord as our king? What do we trust in to provide for us more than the Lord when the latest crisis hits? And how might the Lord get our attention, do you think? In 1 Samuel chapter 12, we see both the kindness and the severity of God. And we see that sometimes it will be fear that is the way to faithfulness. But then, dear friends, when the response comes, what does the Lord do? What does the Lord do with his people? when they've committed such spiritual disaster? What does he say to his people when they've come finally to see their sin for what it is? What comes after verse 19? Well, just this most astonishing language in verse 20. 
And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty, formless, void. Here's the question. What grounds could there be for not being afraid? The answer lies in verse 22 of our passage. For the Lord will not forsake his people, Samuel says, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Do you see? How are we to respond to sin in our lives, dear friends? When we are given the grace to see it for what it is, when we understand what his presence in our lives will mean if it's left unchecked, isn't that what the Lord is revealing to them? When we turn in confession to the Lord, what are we to expect? Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, Samuel says. Brothers and sisters, your confession made, here's what you do. You go forward in faithfulness to the Lord. You don't go back. You don't wallow in your guilt. <laughs> You don't relive the tragic mistake. You don't make yourself miserable by swimming in the memory of your own rebellion. None of that can make atonement. No. Your confession made, you go forward in fidelity to the Lord from that point on. That's the proper response. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. We do not try to reverse all the irreversible consequences of our sin. We gladly accept the fresh grace of God. And then we live faithfully. Let us not think that the big mistake that has disfigured our lives is the first disastrous sin that God has ever seen. Let us not think that we can silence verse 22. We must, as the people of Israel did, see our great evil, whatever it takes. And yet, we must also see Yahweh's great steadfastness even in the face of our sin. 
because it is not only by grace that we become God's people and enter God's kingdom, it is by grace that we remain his people. And what's the primary way that God displays such grace to us? Well, verse 23 says it's through others. Moreover, as for me, Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Friends, your pastoral team at Christ the King aims to do that. And you know that we can do this for one another in the body of Christ. Most importantly, we know that now we have one far greater than Samuel who prays and instructs us in the good and right way and how we need him. Surely, we, the people of God, must confess that we stand if we do stand only because there is one who stands in the breach for us before God. One who, as our prophet, has called us to take his own yoke upon us and learn from him. One who, as our priest, always lives to intercede for us. His covenant-breaking people. This is the response that renews the kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel. And with the kingdom renewed, it then is the command and the final warning of verses 24 and 25 that Samuel leaves the people with that day in Gilgal and that the Lord would leave us with today also. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully now with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.